the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello everyone, my name is Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History, and welcome to Stories from the Rio Grande podcast. And today's episode is going to be a great one. We are going to hear from two local Valley people, and um, I'll let them introduce themselves. So, Marsha, would you like to go first? Sure, thank you so much for having us here today. My name is Marcia Terry. I'm a registered nurse by profession. I've been a nurse for about 20, no, it's longer than that. It's 30 years, 30 years already. I currently am the administrator at Terry Physical Therapy. We have two physical therapy clinics in Mission and the other is located in Panitas, Texas. But my passion is life coaching. So I'm really passionate about empowering women to really find their voice and live their best life. And Teresa? Yes, and hi, I am Dr. Teresa Gatling. I am a physical therapist and have been for 34 years. Um, married, I have two, four children. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. I have four children and I work as the program director for RGB College, um, developing a new physical therapy assistant program. I'm also the co-pastor for Mount Olive Worship Center. And that is what I do most passionately is things related to my church. Awesome. So one of the reasons why you, you're you here and why we're doing this interview is the both of you are the co-presidents and I believe also co-founders of Village in the Valley. Yes. Yes, we are. So I guess, could you give us like some background as far as how that village in the valley was founded? Sure, I'll answer that question. So let's see, about 20 years ago, there used to be quite an active NAACP chapter here, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was a very large chapter. It was valley-wide. We had a lot of events that would go on every year. Teresa and I served on the board for the, the, the local chapter. Unfortunately, through a series of events, the chapter kind of lost its membership and just things happened and the organization kind of fell apart here locally. But even still, we were always really passionate about having this connection for other black people that came to the Valley. And so we talked about it for years, years and years. We talked about we should do the NAACP again. We should get something going like that again. Um, between myself, Teresa and both of our spouses, we we talk about it here and there. And then one day we just really became more intentional of the conversation. We met in my kitchen and we said, let's do this. We came up with a name through our mentor, who's Pastor Kiev Tatum, who has a church in Dallas, Texas, in Fort Worth, Texas. And he really helped us come up with the name of Village in the Valley. So that was in February of 2019. By November of 2019, we said, okay, we're going to go live. We hosted an in-person event. It was our first kind of kickoff event. We had 60 people show up at what was called the um, Infusion. Infusions Eat, Eats and Treats, I believe is what it was called back yes. then. And it was amazing. We knew at that moment that we were definitely on to something. And so with that, we started to get organized. We had other board members come on. And we got our 501c3 status, and we just have been moving full steam ahead 
since then. Of course, you know, 2020 put a halt on everybody's activities, including ours. But that really didn't stop us in the grand scheme of things. I think we got super busy as a result of what happened in May, June of 2020 with George Floyd. We kind of became the voice that a lot of people were looking to to give a response to what was you know, the conversation in the nation. And so we really took to that call and we've been doing a lot of amazing things since March of 2020. So the NAACP in the Valley, do you know what years it was active? I cannot remember exactly when it got started, but it was in the 90s that it got started by uh, Dr. Beverly Friday and Dr. Floyd Atkins. They were probably the two who started it. There's probably a few other people that I'm not mentioning, but I do know that because I don't know, (laughs) but I do know that they were very integral in getting it started and compelling it forward. So it was probably mid-90s that it got started. And it the, it dissolved in early 2000s? 2004, going into 2005. Okay. And Marsha, you had mentioned that when you were having this, you know, these discussions about wanting to do something similar, was there something specific as to why you wouldn't want to have, I guess, the chapter Well, you know, we tried to see about getting the chapter restarted, but it was it was going to take a lot of work. And we honestly did not know all the channels to maneuver to reinstate the chapter here. So rather than going through all the different hoops that the uh, national organization was going to require of us, it was going to be a lot. We just decided to pivot. And also because The NAACP, I think, is a little bit more political in nature, and we weren't Mm -hmm. trying to have that as the premise of our organization. So we just decided to pivot and say, let's just start our own thing with a different name, a different mission, and a different purpose than what the NAACP offers. Last year, after the George Floyd incident, um, you sort of mentioned that you became, your organization became sort of a voice in all of that. And then you mentioned that you didn't want to be political, but, you know, some people would say that nowadays everything is political. How would you, you know, address that, especially because there's still a lot of things going on and a lot of different voices, obviously, on the different political spectrum. Do you all feel like you're in the the middle or you don't want to be associated like that at at all? Uh, not not at all. I, I will answer your question as best I can. Uh, what we mean when we say we didn't want to be political is that the NAACP, when you hear about them being involved just in general on a national level, it's usually in response to some sort of discrimination. Somebody is very upset about something that has happened to them. They've been put in jail or they're beat up or there was police brutality. There was some issue that, that they've been brought into. We did not want an organization that when people heard NAACP immediately thought, oh, it's some sort of rights and activists and that kind of thing. In the Valley, the black community that's here, when even when we had the NAACP, a lot of what we did together was social. It was very social. And we did have some aspects of it where we dealt with legal issues and things like that. But we, we had a large database of people who were involved 
and could say, hey, we're having a birthday party. And literally, we were just, many would show up at the birthday party, Juneteenth activities, and we just came. And, and so it was very social. It was connecting. And so when we got this started, we wanted, in our own minds, that's what we were thinking, we don't need to have the NAACP to be a connecting sort of organization. We can do this as a nonprofit and then we can, you know, do some workshops so we can teach people and help them grow. That was kind of our thought. However, when all of the social unjust stuff went on last year, with especially that's going with the murder of George Floyd, um, there were some things that happened in the Valley that became political. And mostly, in particular, were hearing a lot of people say, well, one, why are we protesting down here? There's no black people. There's so few black people that it really shouldn't make a difference. And, you know, and, and I was pretty much incensed by that comment. And I remember thinking, well, now we have to go to the protest because people don't think that we are even here. And we need to have a voice. We need to make sure that people understand and know that not only are we here, we we have a group of people who are professionals. The majority of us is, are professionals. We, you know, have a lot to say and a lot to do. We are movers and shakers. And we wanted to make sure that people understood. You can't just say we don't need to protest. This is a human rights issue, not so much about being black. But in this case, it was a black man who was murdered once again (laughs) at the hands of the police. And we felt we needed to. So it's not that we're not political in that we're not partisan. We don't choose sides about anything, but we do believe in making sure that people have a voice. Black people, indigenous people, all of the minorities that kind of make up our valley, Mexican-Americans, you know, that we have a voice and we can talk about it. We want to be that connecting group that in that organization that allows people to have that sort of a platform. And so politically, you know, we just want to give people information about politics and things that are happening. And when there's somebody who's been wronged, we want to make sure that we can at least explain and we can jump on it as we did in the case of George Floyd. And and we did kind of become that voice of black people in the valley. And how do we respond to certain incidents? Then they would call and we would answer, keeping it non-accusing, accusatory. But it was just really informational. One information, we're going to give it to you and make sure that the other people in the community will also hear that information. So the the village in the valley name, you mentioned that you had an inspiration by your mentor. When I heard about village in the valley and kind of read, you know, through the website, it made me think about it takes a village to raise a child. Is that We're glad that it did because it was supposed to make you think that oh. most definitely was supposed to make you think that because when you when you go back in time uh, or go back to the motherland, I mean, there's a lot of villages, if you will in Africa and the different countries within Africa. And so taking that thought process of the villages from there, but also recognizing that it does take a village to raise a child. And so we wanted to kind of bring that together, being that we're in the Rio Grande Valley and how do we kind of tie all of that together with 
you know, the majority of the black people not being from this region. And so you feel like you're a villager in this different area. And we live in the valley. So it just made sense to be village in the valley. And the acronym VIVA just is easy to say. And so that's why we went with it. I don't know if you've been inside the museum and sort of visited the exhibits. Uh, This museum? Yes. I have not. I have not either. Okay. Well, um, educate us. Yes. Well, (laughs) there's a particular quote that is upstairs. And, you know, I had, I've been working here since 2015. Mm -hmm. And then we got a new new CEO, uh, September 2019. And he had gone up a couple of times to the exhibits, but one day he had decided, you know, I'm going to take my time. So he went up and right by the entrance, there's a quote by Cabeza de Vaca, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. So he was a Spanish explorer that got his ship wrecked off the coast. And then he traveled with his slave, Estebanico, who was a Moor. And, you know, they sort of explored the area and apparently they came through this region. And then, you know, Cabeza de Vaca was able to go back to Spain. And he wrote a diary or sort of this book called La Relación. So the relationship, I guess, is the translation. And basically wrote about the indigenous people in the region. And basically the quote is, these indigenous people love their offspring the most in the world. Hmm. And he realized he's talking about the valley, you know, how we're very family centric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when he mentioned that, I'm like, I've never seen that quote. So I went upstairs and I'm like, oh, he's right. And I'm like, that is so strange. Like, because, you know, the valley is so family centric. Most definitely. And I think that ties into when we were thinking about Village in the Valley and the the things that were missing that we missed from the NAACP was that social connection. And so Teresa mentioned she has four boys. I have two boys also. And it's not uncommon for, you know, my children to go to school and that they would be the only black children in their classroom, much less the entire school. (laughs) And so... And I remember a short story. My t- my family's originally from Jamaica. I'm Canadian f- through Jamaica. And I took my son, my oldest son, to Jamaica when he was, I don't know, maybe 10, 9 or 10 years old. And I picked him up from school one day after we came home several weeks later. And he said, Mama, he's like, I really like Jamaica. I said, why? I mean, I'm, I love Jamaica. so But I wanted to hear why he loved it. And he said, very quietly, he said, because everybody there looks like me. And it really stuck with me that he noticed the difference between his skin color and the people around him here and going to Jamaica where everybody looked like him. And so with that in mind, when you're growing up in this region and nobody, you look around and nobody else looks like you, it, you can feel like a foreigner, right? Very and so what we, part of the premise through Village in the Valley was to create a place for children to see other kids that look like them. And so that they didn't feel, as Teresa just said, disconnected, but they felt connected. Whether you're from Jamaica, whether you're from Guyana, whether you're from Nigeria, Cameroon, it doesn't matter where you're from. But we just wanted our children to feel like, oh, wow, there's other people here that look like me. And they also would feel safe being here. And that was probably another big 
reason why we did it is we were hearing from other parents with younger children now. Um, my children are all adults, and but the kids now, and they're saying, my, every time we go to Houston, my kids just want to stay there. They don't want to come back because of the same thing that her son said, you know, eight years ago. They're saying, nobody looks like us. We don't want to be here. We want to be where other people are. And we kept going, but there's so many children here who look like you. You just aren't connected to them. And we kept going, we really have to do this. That was one of our compelling, like, we've got to stop saying we need to do this and just do it. My children were able to grow up in a time period when the NAACP was active. And as being that active here, like I said, it was very social. <laughs> we did spend a lot of time and we got to meet other families like Marsha and several others who had children who were my kids' ages and they knew them and they hung out with them and they played with them. So even though in school, my children were the only ones. Good thing was they were all at the same school. So <laughs> they were all together there. But they were just talking about their senior year, I think was my oldest, his senior year. There were all of five minorities, that includes our Anglos, as well as black kids. <laughs> at the school, there was five. And that was it. And he was just at a wedding with one of them. And so they were like, yeah, there was only five of us. And they put all five of us in the same class. And it was so weird because we all sat one behind the other and we were it. There was not another minority in our entire class. And I didn't even realize that because, you know, it, but then they're still very close. Twelve years later, out of high school, and they, they the, the Anglo kids and black kids are still very close friends because they felt connected. They're like, hey, we're, we're like each other. There's not a lot of people who look like us. And it's so important. And I think when you grow up here, if you happen to be Mexican-American and you grow up here, there's so many people who look like you. You don't have the full impact of even realizing, one, that you're a minority in the United States, but not knowing, not ever seeing, some, not seeing a lot of people who don't look like you. <laughs> so you don't really have, you feel connected. You do feel that family. And we have to be more intentional about it. You know, as is in the black community, to not only be a part of the community we live in, but to make sure that our children are connected to their roots and their culture and know and learn about it. You just have to be more intentional. And that's one of the things Village in the Valley, I think, does well, is really trying to help compel our children and our community to know who we are and to stand for it and to just kind of celebrate that. Did any of your children experience racism? In school. Um, In school. So my older son, I believe that he did. I don't think that he knew how to articulate it. But he always felt like people were looking at him because he's dark complected. He's got really bright eyes. I think he's got perfect skin. Um, So he always felt different. And so I think sometimes that, you know, can bring you 
good attraction or not. I've learned to use it in a positive way now. But if you, as a child, when you don't really know what you have, you don't know how to use what you have. And he didn't know. And so we moved him around to various schools a lot when he was younger. Uh, and then we eventually settled on the schools that he was in, in Sherryland. But I think at the beginning, he had a hard time. You know, but again, he wasn't really truly able to articulate and say, oh, they're being racist or they're bullying me because of my skin color. I don't think he could truly say that, but I think he experienced it. Well, and it really became <clears throat> to me when he said, I like Jamaica because other kids look like me. That was a telling sign that he was very much aware that the other people around him did not look like did him. Not. Exactly. And with my children, I, I know because they've told me so. They just didn't tell us all of the incidences. They're like, Mom, it was an everyday thing, being called the N-word every day. It was, you know, picked on by a, a teacher. I'm like, I wish you had told me. But has you know, said things like, said, call them spear chuckers. I was like, what? I said, I wish I had known because <laughs> I'd have done something. Because, yeah, that's why we didn't tell you. Um, they're like, we just dealt with it. I, I know when my oldest son, who's 32 years old now, when he was in the fourth grade, he was nine, nine years old. In fact, it was the same year the Columbine tragedy happened. And there was a young, he got into a big fight with a kid because he was calling him names and um, mostly the N-word and some other stuff. And the kid picked a fight with him and they ended up fighting. And um, his little younger brother had gone and got the teachers and, you know, they broke it all up and whatnot. And the kid told him, I'm going home getting my grandfather's gun and I'm coming back. I'm going to shoot you and all this other stuff. And we're like, first of all, I'm going in the valley. Like, how is this happening in this right, literally the same week of Columbine? So, of course, it was taken very seriously. The the schools immediately, you know, called the police. They got everybody together. And um, I don't know what was wrong with this child. <laughs> exactly. But... That was a really big thing. And we had to have conversation, you know, with my two sons who were both involved at the time. The other two were very little. And to really help them understand what was really happening <laughs> with this whole thing and just how are you really feeling about this? And I think that's why they decided to just say, well, when people talk about me and they don't know me, then it really doesn't mean anything because they don't know me. They're just talking to be talking. And that became the attitude that they had. And I can prove, to, I don't need to prove anything to them. I am who I am. I'm going to do what I do. And they're either going to like me or not. My sons were extremely popular, very, very popular. And mostly it was around athletics. They got into athletics or were very good at athletics. And they were in every sport year round. And so they had a lot of friends and a lot of people who they just didn't care. They said, we, should, we put it on the court. It doesn't matter what you call me. I'm on the court with you. I'm on the on the grass with you. Whatever we're going to do, we'll show who's whatever. And so I think they use sports as a way of accepting, being accepted by people. But even then, I'm not sure that they really cared if they were accepted or not, as long as they could play. And they really, we didn't know till later, much later, like really 10 years after high school that they started telling us more incidents that happened and things that occurred and, and were just like, well, mom, it was okay. I'm like, no, it really wasn't. It wasn't okay, but they just dealt with it. And what they're telling me is they dealt with it by saying it's not really about us. It's more about their ignorance about people. So I didn't pay it any attention. 
I think it's hard to not pay attention, though we say it, but I still think on some level it affects you. It, it did with me. I'm one of the very first. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, and I was bused to an all-white school about an hour and a half from where I live. And that's where I went to school as a, I was five years old. I didn't even understand. I was the only, not the only, it was three of us in my kindergarten class and in the whole elementary school about 15. So it was very small and, and this was in the 70s and that was, and I, even though I didn't get picked on, I really didn't get picked on. It was mostly because we were little kids, so we didn't know. I don't think the five-year-olds really knew <laughs> to pick on people. We understood we were different, but they asked questions. We answered questions, and I asked questions, and and then we just played because we were children. <laughs> wasn't true for my older brother and sister who were in middle school and high school. They had a whole different experience with that. But I think it still affects you in, in some manners, but it doesn't have to be in a negative way. Was there ever a time where they kind of felt like, why are we in the valley? Why can't we live somewhere else? So, you know, my children were born here and this is home. So when we travel, my husband's from Virginia. I'm originally from Canada, like I said. When we travel, the first thing that my oldest son wants is a taco. He wants a breakfast taco. Uh, we have adopted a family from Mexico. They are their Mexican grandparents. They call them grandma and grandpa. My son's first words were Spanish words, my older son. Um, I didn't even know what he was saying. He was asking for food. I'm like, well, I'd call a friend, like phone a friend and say, uh, what's he saying to me? So his words are Spanish words. This is home to him. And so despite the fact that we might be in a region where there's not a lot of people that look like him, this is home. And so you kind of deal with that, you know, how you need to deal with it. I don't know. Yes, now because we've traveled a lot of other places and he's been to other places, you know, he wants to explore the world, but this will always be home for both of my children. Yeah, and my children were born in Texas. My oldest was born in Boston, but they were born in Texas and San Antonio, but they've been here their whole life. And even when, did they want to go somewhere? I don't think they ever asked about going somewhere. They like to go visit. But again, like she said, this is home. You know, they're like, well, you know, this is same thing. They want a breakfast taco <laughs> and they lose them. They want tacos. They're like, they don't know how to make good tortillas. Like, what is this? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, and it's really, but this is, we've said it a lot with Village in the Valley. We might be of an African-American culture at home, but we were raising our children in a Mexican-American culture. So their culture is Mexican-American. <laughs> that is what they identify with. Black culture is what they are taught, that they live a Mexican-American culture all the time. And how do you, do you feel like for both of you, the Valley is home? Do you plan on staying or leaving when you retire? I mean, I, I'm married to someone from the East Coast and he's like, when we're older, we're going to be out. winter Texans <laughs> because I can't deal with this weather. So when I moved here 20 years ago, my intention was only to stay a year. I worked at the hospital and I figured you can do anything for a year. But you know what? And I struggled with some things being a single black female here at the time. Just basic things like where are you going to get your hair done? That's like, you know, still? you like to get your hair and it's still <laughs> a problem every two weeks. But there was nowhere to go, really. Uh, there was one lady. She lived out of town. She came from Houston every other week and everybody went to the salon, which is how I met Teresa. That is how we met. <laughs> in the salon, because you're there all day long getting your hair done. It's just a thing. So after she left, 
like, where do you go? So people were going out of town. So those are some of the struggles that, you know, black women would have being here. And so, yeah, initially I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. But then I met my husband. He's from Virginia. He's African-American. He loves the Valley. He speaks Spanish like 80% of the day in his cl- in our clinic. And so it took me a while to say, okay, this is where we're going to live now. And I think because I had a really good support system, though, around me, before, maybe in the middle of NAACP, we had this group of women we met. We called ourselves Sisters Exchange. Yes. And it was Black women that were transplants. We didn't know each other from before. You just saw somebody on the street and you knew, you saw the look in their eyes like, help. And so you would help and say, look, I got you, girl. Come to this address X and X day. We meet once a month. It's like, you know, the Black women in the area. And that Sisters Exchange grew tremendously. I mean, I still have friends from Sisters Exchange and that's no longer a thing that we do. So those are the things that helped it make it be a lot better for me as back then as a single black female. And then even being newly married and still just trying to find your way, it's like, how do you navigate this different culture? Because I'm Canadian, I'm not African-American. I don't understand the issues that African-Americans have. So I didn't. Um, My husband had to explain a lot of things to me. And as I told him, it was when Trayvon Martin got killed, I was like, oh, because I saw my son at the time, who was about five, and he used to wear hoodies all the time. And I thought to myself, okay, now I get it. It, And it hit me very, very deeply. Um, And that kind of was when the shift started to occur for me. But previous to that, I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what the problem is. I had no clue. Because I didn't grow up here. I didn't grow up like Teresa did in a segregated school. I grew up in northern Alberta. Like, when we had issues there, too, but it was just different. And I'm Jamaican, so it's just everything's different. <laughs> everything's different, <laughs> which is very true. I mean, for myself, my husband and I, when we moved here 20, 23 years ago now, we moved here. And we love the weather. <laughs> we love the weather. But we're from Boston and, you know, like, hey, no more snow. We don't have to shovel. Well, yeah, I never shoveled true. anyways. But um, <laughs> I was a girl and I had brothers. I didn't have to shovel. <laughs> I was in that household. But but we really love the weather. But more than that, we've touched on it before. It's this family-centered yes. area. And I loved the welcoming of the valley. It was, we just felt so incredibly welcomed. I love the parks and people use them. They're actually there. They're having barbecues like every Saturday. And there's a park on every other corner. There's a park that was being used. And I thought this was great. With My families. kids with families. It yeah. was it was just awesome. And that alone between the weather and it and really it was the family that really cemented it for us. But like where are we going and why would we? We don't really have an intention of going anywhere. Now we have thought about maybe buying a vacation home. <laughs> somewhere else that we could go visit when we retire, but this is home. I, I have no desire to move back to Boston. I visit, that I have no no desire to stay there. And I've, almost all of my family is there and my husband's, because he's from Boston as well, but we, we don't. And so, I mean, this is just home, and, and I really, I like it. I mean, I'm going to echo that sentiment of Teresa also. People here are very kind. They've been very kind to me. You know, it's just, it's been a different experience. Not Not that I knew... 20 years ago that I would still be here, but I'm really glad I am. I have yeah. the, some of the closest friends I have are 
my shout out to my fem sisters um, through yes. Fem City. They are Latina, and I just feel like there's really no difference between nope. me and them. It's no just difference. a very <laughs> welcoming, as Teresa said, very family centric environment. And genuine. Yes. And that, that's a big difference. <laughs> very genuine. Yeah. Love being a fem sister. My mother, so she's 55, yeah, somewhere around there, 55. And her thing has always been like, I just, I love to get to know people. Like she likes to, you know, approach people and ask them questions, like who they are and, you know, what's sort of their background. But nowadays, that's kind of not something you should do because it could come across as, I guess, for lack of a better word, racist and tokenizing and things like that. Is that something that you address with Village in the Valley, like trying to help people learn about who you are? Well, you know, having conversation, if it's a conversation, is not necessarily racist. If you come to me and say, hi, how are you? You know, I, I I really admire the clothes that you're wearing. You know, where are you from? Because I don't think you're from here. You know, it's just conversation. However, I will say that I, I was on a, um, a Zoom with a group from, uh, what is it? First United Methodist Church. And we were doing a Bible study on colorism and racism in the church. Which, which was a whole thing. That was very mind-opening. And in that conversation, the majority of the people, well, everybody except for my husband and one other lady and myself who was on the Zoom Bible study was white. They were, they were all white. And most not from here. They were coming to here from wherever they are here now. And that came up as a question because one of the ladies was like, I just want to get to know people. <laughs> and I want to just go, hi, I, I love your hair or some. And she goes, is that wrong? And I'm like, yes, that would be very wrong. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Or just ask, I said, There's a, just say hello. Like, just say hi. Not because the other thing she wanted to add was and like, I just want to know about um, about black people. I want them to get, you don't know. That's, that's not the correct way. Now, is there a school about it? But they asked us, they asked me and my husband, what do we do? How do we have that conversation with someone? And simply, it's like having a conversation with anybody else. You just start the conversation of, hi, my name's Teresa. What's your name? Where are you from? I came from here, whatever. You just talk. Talking, it doesn't, you don't have to think I need to ask specifically because just having a conversation about where you're from and who you are is simple and not really going to be considered racist because it's just you're just talking. But if you start asking particular questions like, why does your hair look like that? Or why did now? Or now why you, does your hair change every two weeks? Yes. <laughs> then it starts getting to be like, let's just talk and get to know who I am and general conversation, like you would meet anybody else. And then it's not like, I mean, I meet people who are, you know, Indian or Filipino, and I just talk to them. I don't, I don't want to ask specifically because, gee, well, you look different, or you act different, or you do something different. But Village in the Valley, you ask, are we addressing it? We are. That is the second part of our mission statement, 
which the whole mission statement is elevating and uniting the black community while connecting the cultures of the Rio Grande Valley. And it's that while connecting part that is really, really important to us. Now, we got kind of off to a start late in the 2019 and then COVID happened, kind of messed things up and we had to pivot, shift and do things a little differently. Uh, And so we had some things to catch up on in 2021 that we didn't get done. But now in 2021, by July, by August, August. next month, we are finally going to really be able to to start directing our efforts towards connecting those cultures of the Rio Grande Valley. And we're starting it with a podcast, monthly podcast, where we will talk with people and literally open that conversation about, well, who are you? What do you do? What kinds of things do you celebrate with your particular ethnicity? What is it? You know, whether you're Vietnamese or if you are, you know, an indigenous person, what is what is it that you do? Tell us, let us learn about it, and and let us allow us to celebrate it with you because we want to get, you know, with your powwow. We want to go. We want to go to you know, celebrate your year of the whatever. You know, we want to do that, but we don't know what it is. We don't know, you know, so we're, we are trying to bring that together and have a platform where people can talk and kind of share their culture and let us celebrate it together. And then hopefully we're going to find a way to bring it all together and maybe do a large intercultural event of some sort. We always keep saying, around food, it'll probably be like some taste of all the cultures (laughs) because everybody likes to eat. That's not intimidating. And we want to just, that's a great way to share culture, a great way to have conversation about the foods of your culture. And that's not racist and it won't make people feel bad. (laughs) So that's, but we don't know when that will happen. It's a thought. It's in there. We want to do that. But for sure, we're going to start having conversation more and sharing it with our community, with our people who listen to us and follow us to get more information about other cultures that are here. Maybe we'll find some that people don't even know that are here. So where Village in the Valley, where is the the headquarters? It's in McAllen, Texas at the moment. We are at a a personal address. I know we just have a, it just goes to an address. We don't have an office yet. That is something we're looking to do maybe by next year, depending on how well we grow and gain funds. We are looking to probably start a grant, writing grants to try to get you know, more regular type of funding so that we can do some of the things we have planned. So what other sort of things do you all do with Village in the Valley? So one of the things that we, we've we done consistently, even through the pandemic, when we had to pivot quickly, was we host what's called First Friday. So on the first Friday of the month, generally, unless there's weather or something, but the plan is the first Friday of every month, we did it all through the pandemic, we gather and it is a social networking. You don't have to have a business. It's just an, a space for people to come and meet one another. And our goal is to have it at a local hotel, kind of during happy hour and just come and show up. Of course, we're going to be talking about Village in the Valley, but it's an opportunity for other black people to come and meet, whether you live in Brownsville, Westlaco, it doesn't matter where you live, come there the first Friday of the month. So that means if you are new to the area and you might be wondering where is the quote unquote black area because there's none here in the valley 
Well, at least you know on the first Friday of the month, you're probably likely to see a lot of black people at this event. But again, it's not just for black people. Yes. So it's a networking event or just socializing. So that's one thing that we do. The other thing that we have is a community closet. So that's the second Saturday of the month where we have been able to ask for donations from the community. We have received bags and bags and bags of clothes. And what we are able to do is we're able to give back to the community to those that are in need for free. So if you're house burnt down, or maybe you are a woman that's in need because you've had to leave your home uh, due to domestic abuse, or just, you know, you've fallen on hard times as a family, you can come to our community closet by appointment and just come look through the clothes, take what you need. We don't limit what you can take. And now the scholarship gala that you mentioned, that was really kind of like an exciting moment for our whole entire board and our organization because last year we wanted to do like this big gala in December, but COVID, right? So we weren't gathering then. So we pivoted to June of this year and it just happened that it coincided with the Juneteenth celebration. And we were able to, it was a fundraising um, event that we had. It was outside at Alyssa's Acres in Mission. And we had a silent auction. We had a live auction. We had a raffle, and we also were able to award three students $500 scholarships each. We put the scholarship requirements out to all of the <clears throat> schools in the Valley, and we had three students that qualified, and we were able to give them a scholarship. It was very exciting. We're very excited yes. to be able to do that because our intention is to do that annually and not be able to give just three scholarships, but to, a to be able to award as many scholarships as possible through our fundraising gala. Yeah, so we do. We did that. And that's just part of our strategic plan under our pillars, where we are, we have community engagement. Another pillar is education and training, social connections and financial empowerment. Those are the four pillars that we have. And those are some of the things we've done under that. But in addition, we celebrate. So we have, we celebrate our holidays. We celebrate MLK Day. We also celebrate many things throughout Black History Month, where we, as well as Juneteenth, as Marsha just mentioned as well, last year we had our first Kwanzaa celebration that we did online. And for anybody, they could celebrate with us each day of Kwanzaa, seven days. We did it. It was amazing. So we do those types of things as well. And those are annual. <laughs> we also raise awareness for the black, the historical black, black landmarks in and around the valley. There's a lot, like our Black History Museum, Calandrit Black History Museum in San Benito. We have the Jackson Ranch out in Donna, Texas. There's uh, Restlawn Cemetery in Edinburgh. There's a lot, Bethel Garden that's in McAllen. There's just a lot of different things that we are trying to raise awareness and share even at the school district, we were working with Grande Narrative, which is a group of six young women who started this talk with the school system in McAllen. There, most of them are graduates from McAllen. They, you know, really started pushing to get African American and Mexican American studies here because they realized that when they left the valley to go to college, they're like, we're minorities. I didn't know this. <laughs> like we didn't, how come we didn't learn the things I'm learning in college? Why didn't we know in high school? And we were also as an organization working with getting some things introduced 
to the to the school district to celebrate not only uh, black history, but also Mexican-American history and indigenous people history. That is very, very prevalent. We got a lot, very rich history in the valley but no one knows about it. It's not taught, and we wanted to. So working with them, they were able to to get Mexican-American studies and African-American studies as now an elective for 10th through 12th graders in McAllen. So that is really, really cool. But those are some of the other things that we do on a regular basis, other than the two initiatives. And Marcia and I are working really diligently on a huge initiative called the Illumination Project. And that project is where we are working with community figures, our mayors, as well as the city council and other community members to create a proactive approach. It's a proactive approach to create an environment where our police force and community really come back together again and and have a respect for one another, to understand who we are. We don't want to ever have an incident like George Floyd happen here. We don't want black people to feel completely intimidated by the police or not want to call the police because they feel that something may happen. And unfortunately, the more you see out nationally, that even though we do have a wonderful police force, do not get me wrong, we do have a great police force. I think they, they do a, a good job, but, you know... It doesn't stop people from feeling that this might not, this might be the day. This might be the day. And so that is part of the driving force behind the Illumination Project is so that we have this open dialogue about what police do, what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. And so again, also so that we can bridge that gap of communication between police and community and community and police and have people feel respected on both sides. It's very, very important to us. Very. And so we have started it right now. We are working with the city of McAllen. We have touched base with FAR and Mission as well as Edinburgh. And they're also all very interested. But we realized trying to tackle all the cities at once, that was our initial thought. It was too much. So we went with McAllen first. And they've been very receptive. We've already begun having conversations with various aspects between the mayor, the former mayor, and we are very shortly going to be speaking with the new mayor. We've dropped little buckets of of hints of information about it. He definitely knows who Viva is. So um, we will be bringing that back up. So that's, those are huge things that we're doing, and we have more we want to do, but, you know, we have to pace ourselves and stay within our strategic plan and, and not do too much beyond it. And just to <laughs> add to that point, one of the other events we did host twice this year is in McAllen, oh, yes. of course, there was the mayoral race where they had five different candidates and several people running for commissioner. So we did a Zoom event where we hosted all five mayoral candidates and commissioners through districts one, two, and three, we hosted them. And we had like a question and answer type forum, a political forum. It was absolutely amazing and all the candidates loved the event. So of course you all know that we had a runoff in McAllen. And so as a result of that, we took it a step further and we decided to host a debate between the two candidates that were in the runoff for the mayoral race. That was pretty spectacular. And so we really, as you mentioned at the beginning about politics, what we want to do in that space is create awareness and for the candidates to be able to have people ask them questions because most people go to the polls and they're voting and they don't know why. Nope. They don't know why the person's running. They just see their names or the their placards or they get something in the mail, but they really don't truly know why candidate X is running 
for mayor or candidate Y is running as their district commissioner. And so we wanted to be able to provide that as an opportunity for the community in McAllen to be able to be aware. We're going to do the same thing in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh coming up in the next yeah. few months. Yeah, and we're being asked to maybe do something about the governor's race. We're like, oh, wow. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, that's a, the governor's race is a big one. <laughs> yeah, uh, a big one. Yeah. Okay, well, that sounds like fun. You guys are doing a lot. Are you, is Village in the Valley looking for members, oh, for volunteers? Oh, for sure. We need members. Uh, we're we need volunteers. <laughs> active members, so, you know, active participation in our membership. So when we call upon you and say we need volunteers to come and help at the community closet, like people are willing and able to come participate. Uh, when we are hosting events, you know, you do need volunteers to help run the event. You can go to villageinthevalley.org. Uh, membership is $25 a year for a single person, $45 for a couple. And if you have children, it's $10, you know, and under 13, 13 is free. So, right. And then we have business members as well. And again, we have to emphasize, you do not have to be black (laughs) to be a part of Village in the Valley. That is not a prerequisite. You just have to be human. That's that's it, you know. And we want, and the more diversity we have within Village in the Valley, the more we'll get to learn about each other. The more we'll really get a chance to just talk and share and support and just love on people, celebrate. And be connected, yeah. That's what we want. Awesome. Is there anything else y'all would like to add that I didn't ask? Uh, You can follow us on Facebook and Village in the Valley RGV on Facebook and on Instagram. We're Viva. I always forget. I would say it backwards. I think it's Viva RGV. (laughs) Viva RGV on Instagram. So those are our two main social media platforms, but also our website, which is in the process of being revamped and updated. Definitely you can find most information about us there. We have a phone number on our website if you want to reach out and contact us. Those are the main ways I believe that people can reach us. And if they want to get involved, just reach out. We are ready for you. We need you. And we're excited to work with whoever is willing to work with us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for participating in this interview. I definitely learned a lot about the organization. So thank you again for joining us. We will talk later. Yeah, thank you so yes, much for having thank us. You. Appreciate really it. Really appreciated it. This podcast was brought to you by the Betty S. Kelso Foundation. It was produced by the Most History Communications team and edited by freelance podcast editor Leah Victoria Juarez. The song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more about stories from the Rio Grande. Send your questions through the Anchor app You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.